Well, good morning. Good morning and welcome to Calvary Baptist Church. I love the energy and buzz and excitement in the room. We are so glad you're here today. My name is Mary Alice and I'm the pastor here at Calvary. And especially if you are new in this place, we are really glad that you're here and want you to know that you are welcome here. You will need a worship folder and one of the hymnals in front of you to guide you in worship today. Also, we would be honored for the opportunity to follow up with you if you're new later this week by email or phone to get to know you better. And one way that can happen is if you would be willing to fill out the visitor card in the pew in front of you and place it in the offering plate later in the service today. That's also a way that you can ask for more information about different ministries here at Calvary or to let us know how we can be praying for you and with you in the coming week. Well, in her memoir, A Circle of Quiet, Madeline Lingle wrote the following words. I am still every age that I have ever been. Because I was once a child, I am always a child. Because I was once a searching adolescent, there is still part of me and always will be that age. Because I was once a rebellious student, there is and always will be in me the student crying out for reform. This does not mean that I ought to be trapped or enclosed in any of these ages, but that they are in me to be drawn out. My past is part of what makes the present Madeline, and it must not be denied or rejected or forgotten. Far too many people misunderstand what putting away childish things means and think that forgetting what it is like to think and feel and touch and smell and taste and see and hear like a three-year-old or a 13-year-old or a 23-year-old means being a grown-up. When I'm with these people, I, like the kids, feel that as if this is what it means to be a grown-up, then I don't ever want to be one. But if I can retain a child's awareness and joy and be 51 years old, then I will really learn what it means to be a grown-up. But I think I still have a long way to go. I like to think that we have been trying to follow Madeline Lingle's advice and worship this month at Calvary. Together, we have been discovering or remembering what life looks like at different ages and in different seasons, and learning how we might better be the family of God for one another in this place, in whatever season of life we find ourselves. I'm grateful for a church that listens to the voices of our children, that holds space for the stories of our youth, that honors the unique perspectives of our young adults, that respects the experience of all adults, and that even seeks out the wisdom of our senior adults. But more than that, I am amazed at a God who speaks to us at all times, at all ages, through all kinds of people and in all circumstances. This is the God who tells us, I will be with you to the very end of the age. And so let us worship this God together this morning.
A reading, a reading from 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. A reading from Acts chapter 10. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up into heaven. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Could I have all the children come up for the children's message? All the children who want to come up for the children's message. <laughs> well, good morning. Yay, Jada came. <laughs> All right. So recently we've been talking about David, and particularly when he was younger. Can you think of any of the stories about David when he was younger? Any come to mind? Yeah. Yeah, David and Goliath. That's a pretty great story, isn't it? But David grows up, right? He gets older, and he does some pretty amazing things when he's older, too. Can you think of any good stories about David when he gets older? Yeah, okay, David and, yep, David and Goliath, he's a big dude, that's right. What else? He writes some pretty cool songs, right? That's one thing he does. Can you think of anything? What does he become? Yeah, go ahead, Stu. Yeah, he becomes a king. He becomes king of Israel, right? And he makes a new capital city in Jerusalem. So he does a lot of great things, and he also does some more fighting, and we cheer him on for some of it. But David also screws up. He makes some big mistakes when he's an adult, like most adults do. Um, can you think of any, do any of you know any of bad stories? Yeah, Dane. Yeah, you got the Uriah the Hittite story down. Okay, so he just relayed that to us, um, that he sent the husband to the front of the battle so he could die. Yep. <laughs> Just wave at your crowd, wave at your fans. <laughs> yeah, and really in that story, that's awesome. In that story, David takes something that's not his, and in doing so, he then causes somebody to die, which is a pretty terrible thing that David did. And in that, we know that David makes big mistakes. 
And David doesn't right away say that he's done anything wrong. Somebody has to come to him and say, you've done something wrong, David. And what does David then say back? Do any of you know? Yeah, Jada. He says, what did I do wrong? He gets told what he does wrong, and then he says, I'm sorry. You're right. I am sorry. And you know, that can be hard to say sometimes, right? It can be really hard to say sorry, and it can be really hard when somebody comes to you and says, I've done something wrong, and or you've done something wrong to me. Isn't it really hard? Isn't that the hardest part to say, I'm sorry back? Yeah. But David tells us a lot about how much, you okay there? Good. Um, about how much uh, we need to ask to say sorry, and we also need to remember that it's important to say this. And as Miss Jenny also already told us in her prayer, David asks God something important. He says, create in me a clean heart, right? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit in me. And that's what we should all pray for when indeed we have made a mistake and we need to ask for forgiveness. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the life of David. We thank you for the example of asking for forgiveness. And we pray, Lord, that when we are uh, asking you for forgiveness, that we remember to ask for you to create in us a clean heart and to put a new and right spirit in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And the source of being, home of every restless heart. In your arms, the world's awake, and you have loved us from the start. We, your children, gather round you at the table you prepare, sharing stories, tears, and laughter. We are nurtured by your our brother Jesus, born to bring a second birth. You have come to stand beside us, knowing weakness, knowing earth. Priest who shares our human struggles, life of life and death of death. Risen Christ, come stand among us, and the Spirit by your breath. Spirit, move among us, be our partner, be our friend. When our memory falls, remind us whose we are that we intend. Labor with us, aid the birthing of the new world yet to be. Free of servant, Lord and Master, free for love and unity. Mother, brother, holy, 
partner, Father, Spirit, Holy Son, we would praise your name forever, one in three and three in one. We would share your life, your passion, share your word of worlds made known, ever singing, ever praising, one with all and one with you. been in a worship series called Spirituality in the Seasons of Life, and my favorite part of this series has been the interviews that have taken place each week. Each Sunday of the series, we have asked our children and then our youth and then some of our young adults to share with us what they wish we knew about this age and season of life and how we can better be the family of God for them in this place. I have been amazed by their vulnerability and honesty each week, and I feel like God has taught me something new through them. And so today we move to middle adulthood. Uh, That's a pretty broad term, and it encompasses a variety of ages and stages of life. Um, But I believe there is so much that we as a church can learn from and receive from you. I told these folks this morning that this ask was a bit different than asking you to pray or read scripture and worship. So thank you for your courage and being willing to share with us this morning. My first question is just to share with us your name and a bit about yourself. And what do you love about this season? I'm Jim Heston. I've been here at Calvary since 1994. And my wife, Jody teaches in the Sunday school. Uh, my My oldest son, Will, just went to Rice, and my younger son, Ben, is at Midway as a junior. Um, The things that I love about this stage um, are that I'm, you know, kind of established in my career now and feel comfortable in that, and that um, my children are pretty self-sufficient and can take care of themselves. I'm Missy Kittner, and I'm a 58-year-old widowed mother of two adult children and the daughter of a 92-year-old feisty mother. (laughs) And um, the thing I love about this stage of my life is that my mother and my children have become my best friends, and I don't have to mother a whole lot. Um, We're friends. We go through life together. We laugh. We cry. We work. And we do things together. So that's what I really love about this stage. Hi, my name is Melissa Gorton. And um, my sister's family is here, the Surreys. I was in New York for about 15 years as a social worker and then came back down here. It's been a wonderful opportunity to be closer to family, including my mom, who, unlike Missy's, actually lives with me. But what I love about this season of life is sort of like what they've shared. There's uh, quite a bit of stability, both um, professionally as well as in relationships. Um, There's a little bit less of that kind of adrenaline-filled excitement you have when you're younger about things you're doing. But there's a lot more of the deeper spiritual excitement of seeing God at work 
in more of the ordinary, but also in the people in your lives that you realize aren't as ordinary as you thought. And I'm Jamie Fulton. Um, my wife, Deirdre, led the children's message today. And two of those little ones are ours, and so they'll go home with us today. And, um, <laughs> and, and that's something that I really do enjoy about um, uh, this phase of life now, is just watching them getting older. Um, I appreciate Pastor Mary Alice for officially transitioning me from young adulthood to middle, <laughs> middle age now. It's, I, I didn't know where the boundary was, and now I do. The lines are kind of blurred, you know? It's like in between. <laughs> well, what about, let's move to, what are some of the things you wish people knew about this age or this season? And even what are some of the unique challenges you're facing that others may not realize? Yeah, so, you know, we're kind of at a, a point now where, and you guys know this really well, you know, when you're younger, you're definitely, you know, taught, be ambitious, you know, get the best grade you can, aim high, become all you can be. And, you know, I'm still at that stage, but I'm also realizing how important it is to be content with, with, what, with where we are now, with what we have, you know, contentment in our family, contentment in work, and stability. But, you know, ambition is still such an important part of, you know, my everyday career, that, you know, it's kind of finding that balance can be a challenge. Um, for me, um, learning more gratitude, it's a little more difficult at this age, but it's a heck of a lot richer, uh, the gratitude I do have, and it's more meaningful, especially towards my mom. She used to be 5'11", and she's now shorter than I am. So seeing her age day to day has been very difficult. I often vent about her poor boundaries, which are real, um, and often deflect with humor. Um, but she really is an amazing woman, and I do love her dearly. And um, even though she lives with me, uh, my brother-in-law's wife is very helpful uh, to taking her to her doctor's appointments when, um, <laughs> that's a private joke, when, uh, <laughs> whenever she's not teaching, she's running around helping my mom, which is, which is really great. So just learning to appreciate more of that, but also the challenge of how to be an adult daughter to my mom. Um, I think... The two challenges I really face have to do with, I, I'm truly a sandwich generation. I have an elderly mother who's quite capable, sort of has lost some of her filters if you run into her, but she's there. Um, <laughs> but she's a, she's a great woman. Um, and then I have two adult children who live with me and treating each of them, both sets, as not as children but as peers, but then still being there to help. And at the same time then, I'm sort of comfortable in where I am at my job now, and I don't really want to go any higher, and I'm very comfortable where I am. But at the same time, coming up and finding that work balance, work-life balance, where both sides of that are satisfied with the amount of me that they're getting and is difficult. It's a big challenge that I, that I deal with. So for me, you know, we just had one uh, leave the nest and go off to college and another one leaving soon. So, you know, just kind of adjusting and maximizing the times that we have uh, with our children. And then uh, Jody and my parents both are 
you know, fairly healthy at this point, but we know at some point pretty soon that we'll be, you know, having to take more care of them. Um, so we're just kind of, you know, in transition periods with, with both our children and our parents. And then personally, uh, for me, it's kind of a reprioritizing um, my life and work and family and just, you know, we kind of have that establishment, but, you know, still things are shifting around and figuring out how everything is going to work. Thank you all. Last question, how can we as the Calvary family better come alongside you as the family of God in this place and in this season of your life? You know, at this point, I don't have anything specific. It's kind of um, kind of unknown, so just kind of a flexibility for me and for our family, I think, is best as we're, you know, kind of transitioning in that. So in the nine months that we've been here, you all have been great and have, found, have given us a place to call home. Um, I think at this season of my life, being a widow, is to understand that I'm happy being single. I, and just understand that. And, you know, I can go out with couples and do things and still be a single person with you. Um, it's, it's not uncomfortable and just know that I'm happy. Um, sometimes I'm frustrated being single because I see couples who get nice boundaries and buffers with their parents. <laughs> oh, it's your turn to talk to him or her. Um, so the, I do have specific ways you can actually help me. Um, as I said, I do love my mom, but sometimes I do like to uh, vent or deflect with humor. Um, and if you read the scriptures, uh, read about Jesus talking about his mom, and all the time he was setting healthy boundaries. Just read some of those. Um, also, if anyone here would like to spend a half hour of their time weekly helping my mom with all her technology issues, um, if you start a business, you will make big bucks. Not kidding. Um, and other than that, um, just being the family of God, is, they've all been echoing, just as you are. It's just been wonderful, your presence. Thank you. Yeah, when uh, Deirdre and I moved down here to Waco six years ago you know, with our young kids, you know, we were leaving behind you know, our families and kind of a support network. And when we came to Calvary, that's really where we reestablished a network of friends, you know, teachers, Sunday school teachers, and friends with the kids. And just um, Deirdre and our um, our you know best friends that we have you know, are here at Calvary and in Waco, and so that's been really wonderful for us. And I think we need to just continue doing that for other new people who come in to just remember that there are people coming that are losing support networks, and they might need a new one. Absolutely. Thank you all for your vulnerability and for sharing honestly of yourselves. It is a gift to all of us. on the journey down a narrow road and those who've gone before us line the way cheering on the faithful 
encouraging the weary, their lives a stirring testament to God's sustaining grace. Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race not only for the prize. But as those who've come before us, let us leave to those behind us a heritage of faithfulness passed on through godly lives. Oh, may find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave leave them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us After all our hopes and dreams have come and gone And our children sift through all we've left behind May the clues that they discover And the memories they uncover Become the light that leads them to The road we each must find Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe. And the lives we live inspire them to obey, to obey. The footprints that we leave lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful, find us I'm still not sure how Mary Alice writes good sermons in such short amounts of time. So in the interest of time, I'm going to jump straight in with a healthy rant this morning. 
Every sermon ought to have at least one, so we'll just get out of the way now. The subject that I was given this morning was spirituality at middle age. And I got to thinking about that adjective, middle, and how we use it to describe that which is not really important enough to describe in any real detail. (laughs) In Western history, we have the Roman Empire and we have the Renaissance, so we just call everything that happened between those two important epochs the Middle Ages. In fact, more often than not, it seems we use the word middle in this way. Where are my middle schoolers, right? That fun season of life where people are all giving you talks (laughs) about changing. What about middle men? Not producers, not consumers. They're the ones everybody wants to cut out. The middle ground, you're not on one side or the other and therefore liable to get shot from both. (laughs) Tolkien gave us Middle Earth, which is seasonally assaulted by various dark sorcerers. (laughs) We're not supposed to use our middle finger as though by its very, as though by its very placement in the middle of our hand it is somehow condemned to live out its life unnoticed and unutilized. One exception to the Middle problem is the Middle East, which has prospered in peace and harmony for the last several thousand years. (laughs) The Middle voice, which I am fairly certain is really more of a philosophical principle than a literary device. Any middle children in the audience, not the oldest, not the youngest, just there in the shadows, (laughs) plotting our demise. And hey, everyone, how about that middle-class experience, am I right? The American dream. Steeler's Wheel gave it, or got us, I'm sorry, Steeler's Wheel got us stuck in the middle with you. Diamond Rio asked us to meet in the middle, meet that old Georgia pine. John McCauley, Taylor Goldsmith, and Matt Vasquez of Middle Brother gave us the eponymous album Middle Brother with its title track, Middle Brother in which the persona decides to learn to fly an airplane in the hopes of getting his various family members just to notice his existence. A middle age, our subject for today, the time in life where, as Lord Byron, Byron, Byron once wrote, we hover between fool and sage, or as Bob Hope said, the time when our age starts to show in our middle. The field of anthropology has a term for these middling experiences, liminal space. When we, when we think about liminal space, it's this concept that was first formulated by this guy, Arnold Van Genup, to describe initiation rituals in which members stood at the threshold between their previous way of structuring identity, time, or community, and a new way completing the right established. As the concept grew and moved through other disciplines, it kind of took on a more general idea, a more general definition. Liminality is really any phase of in-between us where old structures of identity and meaning are broken down intentionally or often unintentionally, but before new structures are fully in place. Instead of this experience being unimportant, anthropologists would say a liminal space, the middle, is often considered the most important, the very hinges that hold our lives together. 
of all the myriad illustrations of tearing down old structures and rebuilding new ones that I could have chosen, I chose what I felt like was the most obvious, caterpillars. And yes, by the end, we'll all be butterflies. But let me say at the outset, it's a heck of a road getting there. I was listening to a radio lab, it's a podcast a few years ago, and they were discussing black boxes in science. A black box is any process where we know very clearly what it goes into the process, and we know pretty well what it is that comes out the other side of the process, but what happens in the middle is kind of fuzzy. Case in point was offered about butterflies. We know what a larva is, what a caterpillar is, we know what a butterfly is, but what happens in between? The chrysalis or pupa is much more mysterious. In fact, if you cut open a chrysalis, it just looks like goo. The caterpillar seems to break down to the molecular level as everything is repurposed and reorganized for making a butterfly. Thus, the black box, what once existed through the process of metamorphosis, is no longer. If a butterfly tried to spend all of its time just crawling on leaves, it would not survive. And of course, a caterpillar attempting to fly would not go well either. Perhaps we ought to take the middle more seriously. In the first half of his life, David is developing, as we all do, something of a constellation of identity. All the little points of light that make up who he is as a person. David is a son, he is a husband, he is a king, he is a warrior, a dancer, a musician, and more. His actions, though not exactly predictable, start to take on a kind of trajectory. Then in 2 Samuel 11:1, 1, David does something to potentially break that trajectory. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to do battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. David, the warrior king, in contrast to the other kings, chooses not to go out, not to fight, and while Joab and his officers do go out, David remained in Jerusalem. Was he afraid? Was he apathetic? Was he simply tired of fighting? The text does not say. What comes next is really the stuff of midlife tropes. He sees a beautiful woman, exploits his position to take advantage of her, tries to hide the affair, and in what is hopefully a rare instance, has her husband killed by abandoning him in battle. All his life, David has been a fighter. From his childhood experience of killing lions and wolves and his defeat of Goliath to his routing of armies, taking by the will of God the throne of Israel from Saul, David spent the first half of his life as a conqueror. Here in 2 Samuel 11, 1, for whatever reason, David put away cultural structures and expectations and chose to not fight on the battlefield. Yet we see as he moves through the story, he does not put aside that dragon energy that would have made Kanye proud. Rather, he redirects it, first by conquering Bathsheba and then Uriah. 
One gets the sense in the narrative that David would have gone on conquering, save that he himself is conquered by Yahweh. David did not experience metamorphosis. Instead, he poured forth his conquering energy on the heads of those under his power. When Mary Alice first asked me to speak about spirituality at middle age, I was thoroughly offended. (laughs) I am, as of today, four full months from being 40 years old. That's 120 days. You can imagine the added offense that I experienced as I have come to know folks at Calvary and gotten a peek at the process that brought me here only to find out that I had become known as the older candidate. As in, you know, we do have some young, vibrant candidates, but we also have this older candidate. (laughs) Yet as I think about the tennis elbow that I've developed, not playing tennis, but moving boxes, and the line-reducing cream my wife got me for my birthday last year, only because she figured out that I was stealing hers, it occurs to me that I, I am, in fact, at a threshold of what is likely the middle of my life. And the truth is, asking me to speak on spirituality and middle life is a bit like asking a man who is blind and who is walking through a room for the first time to describe his decision-making process. I am just feeling my way through. But as I reflect on David's journey, I have to hope that there's an alternative. Not to the process of change, but to negotiating that change. After dropping the thread of Peter's story in the book of Acts for several chapters, the writer picks it up and locates Peter in a peculiar place, the home of Simon a tanner. Commentators often note that staying at a tanner's house would have been unusual for an observant Jew because tanners religiously and culturally existed on the margins of Jewish society. The very elements that they worked with each day, carcasses and typically urine, would have made them perennially perennially unclean. Not only that, Simon's home is located by the sea, probably in order to carry away the undesirable smells. And so Peter is located at two thresholds, one religious and cultural, the ambiguity of his host, and one geographical where the ocean meets the land. This liminal location serves as a poignant context for what follows as Peter wrestles with the collapse of his own religious and cultural structures. The beginning of Acts chapter 10, we're introduced to a liminal kind of guy, Cornelius, who is a Gentile, but who is devoted to Jewish teachings and Jewish practices. And Cornelius has a vision where an angel of the Lord appears and tells him that, in fact, his prayers and his almsgiving almsgiving have come up to the Lord as a memorial offering, and that he ought to send to Joppa for a man named Peter. The narrative shifts to Peter in verse 9, and the reader finds Peter sitting on the roof praying and hungry. There's no hunger quite like Sunday morning hunger, is there? Church hungry. And so Peter called down to have someone prepare his lunch, and while his lunch is being prepared, Peter too had a vision. Something like a large sheet of animal, or being let down by its four corners, filled with all kinds of animals. Like Cornelius, Peter receives a command, rise, kill, eat. Unlike Cornelius, Peter did not obey. 
He replied, Surely not, Lord, for I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. A voice emerged and said, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. Three times the sheet was let down. Three times he was commanded, Rise, kill, eat. Three times Peter refused to do so. You see, part of Peter's constellation of identity was that there are foods that it's okay to eat and there are foods that it is not okay to eat. To eat something that was unclean was more than just breaking a social moor within Peter's culture. It was breaking Torah. It was breaking Jewish law. Hence his refusal, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the bewildering response of the voice that Peter should not call anything impure that God has made clean serves as a direct challenge to Peter's sense of right and wrong as well as his identity as a Torah-observant Jew. Peter is being asked to put aside his categories of what is acceptable and unacceptable to God and do something new. Peter says no. But he doesn't stop thinking. In fact, the text tells us that Peter sits on the roof, perplexed by the dream, that when Cornelius' men arrive downstairs, Peter is still thinking about that vision. Though he rejected it out of hand, Peter sat with the discomfort of the vision. I want to call your attention in the text of Peter's negotiation of this new lesson that he is learning. As Peter was contemplating the vision of voice manifested, told him to get up and go with those men who are arriving, not sometime in the future, but get up and go now. So Peter got up, he greeted the men, but he did not go. Instead, he asked them what they wanted. He invited them in. It wasn't until the next day that they got up and went with him. When he arrived at Cornelius' house and all of his household was gathered there, Peter noted those previous structures of his identity. He noted their crumbling in verse 28. You know it is illegal for a Jew to associate with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I must not call anyone profane or unclean. And then he asked another question. Why have you sent for me? And so Cornelius told his own story, vision of an angel, four days earlier. And it was only after hearing Cornelius' vision, it was only after seeing those corresponding details, the nature of those visions, that Peter fully incorporated this new structure he was learning and proclaimed, I truly understand God shows no partiality, but in every nation who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, moving against 2,000 years of Jewish identity thinking. Hesitantly, carefully, but faithfully, Peter took each step forward, only finding his obedience along the path as he walked upon it. For many of us at middle age, the structures provided by our family, our work, and even our faith are prone to failure. There are numerous numerous theories as to why this might be the case. Richard Rohr offers the likely true but not terribly comforting answer that eventually the supposed achievements of the first half of life have to fall apart and show themselves to be wanting in some way or we ourselves will not move further. In other words, at some point, The foundation we have laid in the first half of life has to be torn up 
and the renegotiating of those structures becomes the focus. Very often, we do not choose this process. Like Peter, it happens to us. Maybe through the death of a loved one, maybe someone leaves, our institution makes cutbacks, our own health fails, whatever the reason. Those answers, those structures of identity and meaning-making that we relied on crumble. We are left feeling like we must rebuild houses and workshops, bridges and cathedrals with little more than rubble, like we ourselves are broken down to the molecular level. And hear me. In that space, it is okay to mourn. It is okay to be perplexed. In fact, it may just be necessary to sit atop the pile and weep over what once was and the magnitude of the work ahead. All of my life, I have been a young person. I may not have made any 40 under 40 lists or won any young leaders awards, but I've always been young. So often in the first half of life, we spend so much time aspiring to attain what we imagine we want, perspiring to make it happen. And when we finally get there or fail to, we realize it wasn't even really what we wanted. But now we spend all this time and energy getting it, and our lives, and often the lives of our family, are built around it socially, economically, financially. So we just try, for the love of God, to keep calm and carry on, bearing now the empty shell of our ambitions and dreams. But the truth is this. Like the chrysalis, that shell is not the location only of our dying, but by the love of God, the place of our rebirth. The reality is we are all prone to face such shifts and structures in our identity. Perhaps we're more prone to them at midlife. Perhaps all of us experience them along the way. As we grow from children to teens, from young adults to mid-adults, as we go off to college, as we become, go from middle age to that which is beyond, at each one of those personally unique junctures, we must face again the in-between, the here but not yet, the ambiguity experienced as the constellation of our own identity begins to shift once more. But it is exactly that kind of change that creates the space for something new to emerge. Perhaps the most hopeful part of Acts chapter 10 is that Peter's voice is not the final confirmation of the new structure. Before he's even had the chance to offer a good Baptist invitation, he is preaching to the Gentiles and the Spirit falls on those gathered and they begin to speak in tongues just as their Jewish sisters and brothers had at Pentecost. It's not a question of if change will come. It's not a question of if it will be painful or difficult. The question is, can we sit with it? Even if it perplexes us, even if we don't know what to make of the remains, can we hesitantly, carefully, faithfully continue down the path as we wait for the Spirit to begin to knit together something we could have never 
imagine from the other side of the threshold. At the very end of that Radiolab podcast, they discussed two experiments done with butterflies. In one, caterpillars were treated to a displeasing gas. And guess what? The butterfly could remember it. The second was a scientist carefully cutting open a caterpillar to reveal these two little transparent wings inside. So I want to leave you with this thought. Some of who you were always stays with you. And some of who you are becoming has been there all along. As we close today, I want to pray this blessing by John O'Donohue over you. When the rhythm of the heart becomes hectic, time takes on the strain until it breaks. Then all the unattended stress falls on the mind like an endless increasing weight. The light in the mind becomes dim. Things you could take in your stride before now become laborsome events of will. Weariness invades your spirit. Gravity begins falling inside you, dragging down every bone. The tide you never valued has gone out and you're marooned on unsure ground. Something within you has closed down, and you cannot push yourself back to life. You have been forced to enter empty time. The desire that drove you has relinquished. There is nothing else to do now but rest and patiently learn to receive the self you have forsaken in the race of days. Amen. Sun, moon, and stars in their courses above.
Almighty God, we stand before you, citizens and residents of one of the world's richest nations. Most of us have never experienced extreme poverty, nor the generosity of heart illustrated in the story of the widow's might. Help us recognize greed and self-centeredness when they disguise themselves as achievement and security. Give us generous hearts that see the riches you've given us as gifts to be shared. Amen.
Calvary, it is my joy to officially introduce you to Taylor Shippey. I hope you've had a chance to meet Taylor over the past year. He is a second-year student at Truett Seminary and has just been a delight to the Calvary family. has been involved in our young adults ministry and the intergenerational choir, helping in the children's ministry. We often say that Taylor is probably one of the kindest people at Calvary, but the young adults shared that last night, he shared that after midnight, his sarcasm comes out. So there's another side to Taylor. But Taylor is called to be a pastor and is so enjoying his time with us in Waco and at Calvary. And Taylor, we're thrilled to welcome you to the Calvary family and have some words we would like to share with you today. you to have a seat for just a moment and then Taylor will walk out with me during the invitation and I'd love for you to have a chance to greet him as you leave today. We're also thrilled to welcome Van Chaney as our new pianist today. Van and his wife Marjorie um, recently moved here from San Antonio to be closer to their daughter here in Waco. Van has over 50 years of experience in church music as a music minister, pianist, organist, and accompanist for multiple groups. Um, we hope that you will make Van and Marjorie feel welcome and we look forward to your participation in worship and in the life of Calvary. Also, as you leave today, John Hunt will be standing by the small group signs, and we'd love for you to consider joining a small group this fall. They'll begin meeting the week of September 22nd through October 27th. Um, raise your hand if you've been part of one of these small groups before. I've always loved looking around, and every semester it seems like there's someone who's new to Calvary who's been a part of every group. Uh, it's a great way to get to know new people, to engage more deeply in mission, um, and just to share life together. So we hope you'll sign up for that. Next Sunday, we'll be having our church-wide lunch after worship, see the announcements for what you can bring. Calvary folks, we really encourage you to bring generous helpings of sides to participate in that. And we also have a secret that, okay, Eba is not in here. So we are going to have a surprise birthday party for Eba Martinez during lunch next week. Um, if you don't know Eba, she is almost like the fairy godmother of Calvary. There is just so much that would not happen here without her, and meals especially would not happen without her. Our deacons are helping to coordinate this, and so if you'd like to be more involved and want to know how you can help, talk to a deacon. But we are so glad to get to celebrate Eba for her 80th birthday next Sunday. And then lastly, for the next two weeks, uh, we have a unique request. Y'all are probably used to unique requests from us. Um, we'd love for everyone to bring an old t-shirt with you to, to worship. Um, the brighter, the more colorful, the better. We'll have hampers out in the Welcome Center where you can bring a t-shirt. we really love for everyone to participate in this, um, and that will be part of a, a worship experience uh, later this fall, and so we'd love for you to help out. Well, please stand and join me in this benediction. Friends, may the God who calls you from this place journey with you as you go. May God delight in you with joy, bringing unimagined graces. Walk with you in darkness, shining light along your way. May God be close to you in pain, giving strength for every moment. 
and comfort you in fear, granting courage to be brave. May God's love surround you. May Christ's mercy astound you. And may the Spirit abound in you so that you live in the fullness of the God who is with us always. Amen. Peace. Amen.